Hello, Classic Crew, and welcome to Classically Ever After, the Classically Abby podcast with Jacob and Abby Roth. Three times a month, we will discuss the ins and outs of marriage and relationships, parenthood, classic living, and navigating the modern era while maintaining traditional values. From philosophy to practical advice, you will find out what we really think. Hi guys, and welcome to today's podcast. So this is the new and updated podcast. Jacob actually came up with the name. Uh, We wanted to come up with a good name for our shared podcast, and we thought about it for a while, and you came up with this. The agony, the blood and sweat (laughs) and tears spent trying to come up with a name that wasn't just classic cast or classic chat (laughs) or anything so derivative (laughs) of your main name. I mean, yes, it's classically ever after, but at least that's got like idiom in there and other stuff. Uh, Yeah, this this was work. But I'm really excited that Jacob is now part of the podcast permanently. Um, I think it's going to make things a lot more fun and interesting because Jacob and I talk about pretty much everything, and now we can put our thoughts online for everyone else to hear. (laughs) Yes, very healthy for a marriage. My (laughs) first question to start us off is you said pretty much everything, implying that there is something held in reserve. I don't hold anything in reserve. (laughs) So now let us air it to the world on this podcast. What is it you hold in reserve? Oh, here we go. No, it's nothing. Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. So now let's get into a little bit of what this podcast is going to be like. Uh, It's going to have some things carry over from before, from the Classic Girls Guide, but it has its own unique spin. Uh, So instead of kind of a weekly catch-up like I did on the Classic Girls Guide, what we're going to do each week, actually you came up with it, so why don't you say? So uh, acknowledging uh, forebears and inspirations, a thing I really liked from early Daily Wire podcasts was the Stuff I Like, Stuff I Hate segment uh, that's fallen by the wayside, and now clearly the Daily Wire's a floundering business with no success (laughs) because they dropped the best part out, and that's why the company's gone bankrupt and you've never heard of it. But just take my word for it that once upon a time, Daily Wire was absolutely thriving (laughs) because they had the Stuff I Like, Stuff I Hate segment that all the hosts would do. And so with that in mind, I would like for us to do it, but in our own manner, uh, which I thought of the idea in the first place for us to do, and then I thought of tinkering with it and modifying it, because that is the Jacob Roth way. And (laughs) instead of just stuff I like, stuff I hate, we're going to have a unique spin week to week where we do different categories. It's always an up or down, a positive or a negative, but stuff I like, stuff I hate is so boringly static. (laughs) I prefer one week doing stuff that makes me chuffed and stuff that leaves me gutted. You know, the only two emotions that British people can experience. You're on a continual uh, continuum. Great elocution. A continual continuum between chuffed or gutted at any moment if you're a character on the Great British Bake Off. Right, exactly. Not a contestant, you're a character. Yeah. (laughs) We'll also be doing a highlight of the week where we'll each share, kind of that's our version of the weekly catch-up now, where we'll each share something that was really nice that happened that week and we want to share. I didn't finish the examples, though. They might think it's only chuffed or gutted. No, I don't want them to uh, know everything that's coming. I want them to know that there will be options. Other possible themes. They'll don't hold us to fundamental creativity we will repeat categories. This can only go so far. (laughs) So that'll be kind of the opening of each episode, you know, besides the normal opening of us just chatting, because that's what inevitably ends up happening here. Then the middle portion of each episode will be the main topic, which we'll be sharing. 
And to finish off every episode, we will have our classic thought of the week, which is just a little bit different than classic tip of the week because we want to keep it a little bit broad. We want to keep it broad enough where we can share our recommendations or things that we learned that week that we think improved us, made us more classic, and could hopefully help you. So there's going to be some structure to this podcast, which I personally prefer when I listen to podcasts. <laughs> yeah, it's not two guys in Brooklyn talking into a mic for 45 minutes. Yeah, it's a man and a woman in Florida talking into a <laughs> mic for 45 ah. minutes <laughs> or longer. So let's get into the first part of today's episode, which is is the antonyms, the opposites. <laughs> That's what we're going to call it, the we're antonyms. Gonna, the antonyms. Uh, and today we are doing things I would make again or things I don't want to eat ever again. I would call it serve it up or throw it away. Oh, I like that. Serve yeah. it up or throw it away. So a uh, big thing is that I had been hooked on making curries for about a month and a half and then from there, making some really exotic things. I did happen upon beef rendang as a recipe that I could replicate and do quite well and that Abigail would actually like. Mm -hmm. So that was all very well and good. Uh, but I've been trying to branch out beyond that. Yeah, pretty much everything you cooked for about two to three months was Asian cuisine. Well, and not just Asian, South Asian cuisine. South Asian it cuisine. It was not Chinese. It was not Japanese. I made pad thai maybe once. It really just hovered between Indonesian and India. Yeah, which was good, but also... Not in the quantity that I provided. <laughs> I got to eat many things that had many similar spices. What, you, you don't want mush on rice? But yes, serve it up or throw it away. And so what in the last week would you want to have served up? Okay, but I made it myself, and I'm going to give myself credit. <laughs> All right. Uh, we made carne asada. Tacos. Tacos. And I cut up and fried up some delicious steak, right? Ribeye. And I was very proud of how I did it because I sliced off all of the fat first and I fried that up in the pan so that it coated the cast iron pan. And then I put in the beef itself and it was really, really tasty. Uh, I also put in onions and mushrooms and garlic and cilantro, I think. And it was good delicious. Job. It was so good. Uh, the only thing that I would say is I was I led astray I by was my going to jump by my in. husband. <laughs> I was going to jump in and say the reason why it wasn't my serve it up choice is because I misled <laughs> you. I asked you to cook the steak too long. Mm -hmm. I am not a big steak preparer. I'm not very experienced with it. I do everything else with beef besides make steak out of it, uh, just for whatever reason. And so I encouraged her to cook it low and slow, and that was a mistake, and it came out chewy, and it made it a little bit unpalatable to me. So, yeah, Jacob is a big texture guy. Now, I am also... Everyone is. I, I, I'm also a person who cares about texture, but like I will still eat a chewier steak if I think that the flavor is good, and you do not want to do that. I would rather not eat than eat what I don't like. We've talked uh, about that, yeah, <laughs> on the podcast we, we have tested the limits of that, and I'm willing to go quite far in the direction of not eating <laughs> instead of eating what I don't prefer. So what about uh, you? What was your serve it up? So my serve it up was the shakshuka. I made yesterday. So tell people what shakshuka is, because I'm guessing they don't know. It's a different kind of dish. Yeah, so shakshuka, I'm aware of it being North African, so I'm going to assume that's true. Uh, I only know it in Israeli context, so yeah, to me it's Israeli food. Well, it might be by way of Morocco. Right, fair enough. Yes. So it's a baked egg dish where you're going to prepare a tomato sauce base 
using tomatoes, not like a jarred tomato sauce. You're gonna first saute up your onions, maybe other things to add for flavor. I had onions and chorizo that I had chopped up and put in there. Is chorizo only ever... It's pork for the most part. I was going to say, we should clarify. It's yeah, no, beef that's... chorizo because we keep kosher. Yes, so there's kosher beef chorizo. If you're a non-Jew, then you're probably going to find pork chorizo is the mainstay. Unless you go out of your way to pay a lot more for your meat with no visible added benefit except for Jewish spirituality. Uh, <laughs> you're going to be having pork chorizo. So I cooked up the chorizo in there. Then I added the diced tomatoes cooked that all together, simmered it, then made wells in it. I was using the cast iron pan, cracked my eggs in there, put it, a baking sheet over it so that it could steam up and cook, mm. and then I served that. And the spices that I used were turmeric, cumin, uh, chili powder, dried coriander, and a heaping helping of salt and black pepper. It was very, very good. Yes. So I really enjoyed it. I liked that. We definitely need bread with it, but that worked well. And then throw it away, trash it, get rid of it, was also shakshuka. Yeah. It was the shakshuka I made today with potatoes. I had no more chorizo. I thought a potato might be good as well. No. Texture's all wrong. Mm-hmm. Get it out of here. Potato shakshuka is trash. Yeah, I didn't love the, the potato shakshuka. But the original shakshuka was very, very good. Um, but we learned a good lesson. And also that for the future, I would love to keep putting in chorizo because it's really tasty. Yes, indeed. So now let's share a highlight of the week. Uh, just something in our lives that made us happy this week. So actually, this week I had a meeting with someone who you might see come up on my channel soon, Rabbi Manis Friedman. And if you have been part of our book club for long enough, you will have read his book, The Joy of Intimacy, with us. And it was a great read. We all really loved it. So I had a meeting with him. Uh, we will be collaborating in the future. And he was fantastic. He's really an interesting, interesting rabbi. I can't wait to share more of his thoughts with you all. And it was it was just a really cool experience to meet him because he is so prolific in his work and his work is really important. Fantastic. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to meeting him at some point as well when that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for my part, my highlight of the week, I'm tossing between three options in my head, but I'm going to go with after Shabbat last Saturday, we linked up over Tabletop Simulator, which is a game application that I have through Steam, which is an online game platform that lets you play board games but in like a digital space versus in person. And the best part about it is that you can do multiplayer with people at a great distance. And a main way that I keep in touch with a few of my friends actually is through playing board games on Tabletop Simulator. But in this particular instance, a couple that we're very good friends with in the area who live only about 10 minutes away, Mm -hmm. they had to watch their kids. It was late. It was after Shabbat and Saturday. We're talking past 9 Mm p.m. So we played a board game called Wards of Vegas on Tabletop Simulator, and they learned it quite well and quite quickly, and we got underway. And we didn't complete the game, but it was a lot of fun, and I initiated another couple in their first tiptoe steps into the cult of board gaming, (laughs) which is, uh, I am a a high minister within that. I own too many. I own more board games than I have played, uh, because too many are still in shrink wrap in anticipation of when we would be in a Jewish community with people to play them with, and I am still working getting that board game crew together. So It's going to be great, and I am so happy that we have found Tabletop Simulator because it's such a good way to play board games with people even when you're not near them. 
be that across the country or 10 minutes away, but sometimes it's hard to get out of the house to get together when you have kids. Oh, yeah. Also. Oh, I was just going to say, to to wit, to your point, uh, I have my boys, who I will inevitably be referring to on this podcast because (laughs) they're my boys. And we got one who I know from when I was an undergrad who is in Portland. We have another from when we lived in Nebraska who's in Omaha. Then we have two who were in Virginia who are now in Florida but on the other coast. Mm -hmm. And so that's still a few hours away. And so this collection of chuckleheads, my boys, (laughs) uh, we get together and we play long indulgent board games over Tabletop Simulator. With Abigail, because she's one of the boys. I'm one and, of the boys. Yes, you're one of the boys. <laughs> uh, I am truly blessed, a very lucky man. I will reiterate this many times throughout the podcasts <laughs> that I get my cake and eat it too. I have a wife who is a wonderful lady, uh, very much on the side of being a lady, but then also is fully capable of hanging with the boys while preserving <laughs> her ladydom. Uh, and well, these... I consider them. I consider myself like the house mom of the crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is really fun, but also I, I just like hanging the, out with the them. The Snow Whites and my dopey, mopey, angry, no. sad, grumpy, <laughs> wumpy, or whatever their names are. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll take the, the title. Snow White is the best, but... <laughs> <laughs> Your complexion and hair, you might as well work that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yes, and shout out to the boys who will be listening. We love you dearly, and I will be <laughs> making many references to you. <laughs> but that was the highlight of the week. And now let's get into the main portion of today's episode. So because this is the introductory episode of Classically Ever After, we kind of wanted to talk about why we have classic values, traditional values, how we got to this point, and why we really are proponents of living this life, a good life. So If that's not too broad a pitch, (laughs) at least for the first podcast for the... 20 or so minutes that we'll be discussing it. Yeah, you know, I think that if we give kind of a timeline of how we got to where we are now and why we have any authority, if you want to say that, to talk on this topic, maybe we we can share it. Sure. So who's up first, batter, batter? (laughs) I can go first if you want. No. Okay, you go first. I will go first. Go first, sir. So I'm not big on autobiographical content. Uh, I don't like. I like to talk. I don't like to talk about me so much. <laughs> Did you so guys know why... that my husband likes to talk yet? <laughs> yeah, who, could, who could have figured it? Okay, so uh, my autobiography on this topic in short, uh, I liked what you posed as a question, which is why we have any authority to be discussing this topic. And to me, since I like exercise content as well, things like that, that's like saying someone who exercises and then has recommendations from doing it for a few years, well, are they a PhD on the topic? Mm-hmm. Did they win a Mr. Olympia or whatever? And all that's nonsense. If you care about accomplishing something in this realm and you've been devoting time to it and you've been workshopping, trying out things, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't work, and feeling the joy of when things click and work and feeling the pain of when they don't, then you have something to offer and provide. Mm -hmm. We don't have a position of expertise or superiority. We have a position of enthusiasm to try and accomplish a well-lived life that we believe you get there with these values and enthusiasm for discussing uh, what we think works, what we think doesn't work, and helping the conversation around all the distractions to a well-lived life and then uh, all the things that do assist it. That's really all it is. The idea that if you talk about something and give advice must mean as an assumption at the start that you think you're better, 
That's a very trashy way to go about it. Anything. Mm-hmm. You, no one has that perspective with their friends, with their real peers, with things like that. Instead, if you're in on a project, you're all just happy to help each other make it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that, that's where we're coming from. Not any form of arrogance. Mm-hmm. Uh, judgment, yes. But not judgment to make ourselves feel superior. Judgment of what works or doesn't work. We're all judging beings. Everything we do is a form of judgment. It's always, is this better? Is this worse for what I'm trying to do? So yeah, there's a lot of judgment involved, but it's not that stupid like ego judgment of it's just about you and it's narcissistic inflation itself. No, no. It's judgment of this gets in the way or this helps the way. Well, exactly. And I think that a big part of that is that we really want people to live a good life that makes them happy, that brings them meaning and fulfillment. And happiness, I, I always caveat because happiness can be fleeting and can be brought on by uh, having uh, pleasures very very quickly and then it goes away. But meaning and fulfillment and purpose, I mean, those are the big things. So we really share these ideas because we want other people to find meaning and purpose and fulfillment. And so much of what you're told is going to give you those things by the media is going to actually do the exact opposite and can lead to really negative negative down, downturns, spirals, emotions, all those things. So yeah. happy people make people happy. Unhappy people make people unhappy. Mm-hmm. So just zero sum brass tacks at the end of the day, we want to put out good things into the world that will help people find happiness in the ways that we have managed to and then help people work through the things that make you unhappy like what we've encountered so that we can all be on that better off Mm -hmm. and since we also have a very religious perspective we think that also all ties into the idea that god made us a certain way our natures are not just anything they are in fact quite specific and so we should all be trying to conform to that God-given nature because that's where actual happiness is found and that's how everything's going to vibe. Uh, You know, you can hit metal a lot of ways, but if you want it to sing or ring or produce whatever the particular sound is, you can't hit it just any way. You gotta hit it the right way. It's a similar thing when it comes to just living your life. Um, And that's why when we say happiness, it's we're having a lot of preface to the autobiographical section, but whatever. Uh, It's a podcast. Um... (laughs) You guys are here to listen. Yeah. And we're here to talk. (laughs) Um, What you were saying about the idea of happiness uh, being kind of fleeting versus purpose and fulfillment, there's a lot of difficulty talking about this topic because our set of words is too limited and we have too many words that are doing double, triple, quadruple, quintuple, we'll go on, (laughs) duty, and it's too much. What does happy mean? Well, happy could mean the same thing as purpose and fulfillment, depending on who you're talking to. Or it could just mean the stupid fleeting pleasures. Right. Or it happy could-, could mean licking an ice cream cone and being happy that you're having ice cream. And happiness could mean looking into your child's eyes and knowing that this person is part of you and you are part of his future. Yeah. And it's happiness- like two hugely different emotions, but both use the word happy. Yeah. And happiness can mean mere satisfaction of desire or it can mean something deeper that actually works with your nature, which is going to the meaning and fulfillment part and also the ice cream part. And so would you say that someone who is jonesing for a cigarette because they have an addiction and have not had one in a while is happy when they have the cigarette? Yeah, you could say they're happy. You could also say that they're not happy. <laughs> it 
the word is meaning two very different things here, so our conversation is really stunted and thrown off. And so that's why Abby and I are going to talk about things in particular ways, because consistency of language makes everything we say so much easier to actually understand as compared to just making it a series of clippable quotes that can be misconstrued or just having it be a word jumble to begin with. So with all that in mind, that's where we're coming from with a bunch of this right at the start. So to jump into the autobiographical section, um, my background, I was not raised religious. I was uh, raised in a household, only child, basically. I have an older sister who's 14 years older. Uh, so, you know, just not in the house when I was growing up. My parents both worked full-time, very full-time. So it was a series of live-in nannies who were there who were primarily responsible for looking after me. And my parents love me dearly, but they're very careerist. They really believe that career is the fulfillment of self. It's where you express your unique gifts and ability. And the attainment that you get from rising in career is the best expression of self, the best challenge, the best achievement, things in that realm. They're not materialistic, which is a very funny thing. You would think that people are so career-oriented would then be focused on the money side, but that's not them. It really is the expression of ability. It's Mm -hmm. like talking to an elite athlete, and their motivation isn't money. They want to be paid. They would feel disrespected if they weren't paid commensurate with their ability, but the guys who really want to be the best want to be the best because that's what they feel they're there for. They're like a tool for the job. And that's the way my parents felt about career. So they worked very long hours. That was their groove. That was their grind. Uh, Sigma grind set parents. (laughs) And so that's the condition which I was raised. I was always very taken with ideas. So when I describe myself as an intellectual person, do not mistake that for arrogance because I'm about to be self-deprecating here. (laughs) I mean intellectual in the sense of a person who is taken with and focused upon abstract ideas by nature. It is not a practical person. It's not a person who's actually good at accomplishing anything. It's just a person who really likes ideas more for their own sake than anything that actually connects to reality. That doesn't mean that the person is intelligent. It just means that they like ideas. That's what I mean when I say I don't think anybody's going to blame you for saying you're an intellectual because the fact of the matter is you are, and I don't, and yes, it's good that you're saying it's not coming from a place of well, arrogance, but who you Who wants are. to describe themselves as such unironically and just be like, yeah, no, this is a normal conversation. I'm a normal person. I describe myself as an intellectual. Like, yeah, true enough. But Stop that's it. Be but, quiet. <laughs> but let's just say you are a very yes. ideas-oriented yes. guy. So, of course, because I'm an ideas-oriented guy, my parents were not very religious. They're very practical people. And so when I was being raised... There was not an intergenerational transmission of ideas and culture. They just assumed that the public school system would take care of it. They assumed that when I was going to the reform synagogues after school, Hebrew school twice a week for two hours of pop, that I would get the Judaism, the religion, the background from there. And they were very institutional people. So they trusted institutions to take care of it because they were working. And then on the weekends, we'd spend time together. My parents loved me. They spent as much time as they could with me. But there wasn't this transmission of mission and heritage Mm -hmm. and basically context and community. Uh, Instead, it was in the suburbs. Your parents love you. You love your parents. And those are your relationships. It's very one-to-one. My friendships were all me with the friend, 
direct. Mm -hmm. And this is all giving the context for what I will nowadays describe as kind of an atomic mode of existence. The suburban, you live on your own, all the relationships are direct. You don't have any relationship to a community and then a connection with people through a community, right? Uh, an example of this, I think, would be like the nuclear family, which I did a whole podcast on, but the idea that the nuclear family is separated from every other part of the community. It's the parents, it's the kids. They are separated from their extended family. They're separated from the community. It's on their own. That's an example of yes. an atomic... Yeah, it's just your relationships are very bilateral. Yeah. And nothing occurs in the context of a bigger relationship or duty. Yeah. It's that very modern, capital L, liberal mode of existence. Everything is what I have chosen. It's all deliberate and on my terms. And I have no obligations that aren't me to one other person. And they owe me the exact same thing. Right. Um, so that was what I was raised with. And so being an ideasy person, of course, I ended up be taken by this extreme idea or that extreme idea. So you know, by late high school, early college, I was a militant atheist, extreme libertarian. When I say militant atheist, I mean in the manner of a Russian novel. Like, uh, I, you know, I would express nihilistic ideas because, well, all forms of moral assertion basically assume the presence of God. God's a ridiculous notion. Therefore, there's nothing underpinning anything. Like... Okay. Or my libertarianism was one step above anarchism of, well, the only moral principles that exist are voluntarism and consent. Everything else is just kind of an abstract uh, form of power relationship. Well, and a good example of this for you guys who have read The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self for Book Club is the idea of third world. Jacob, I would say you were describing a very third world view of to be clear, when we say third world in this mm-hmm. context, the philosopher who wrote The Rise and Shine of the Modern Self was not talking about third world economics, but rather moral structures. Just, yeah. just to be clear when you say thir- third world. Yeah, so there, he talks about how first world uh, perspectives were um, based on mythology and fate. That was how they understood the world, the context in which they understood the world. Second world is based on faith, on religion, that the moral structures of the world are something that God gave us. And third world undermines all of that and says, no, there is no moral structure and therefore we have to create it ourselves, which is a very libertarian viewpoint. Or Yeah, it's that Nietzschean existentialist thing of, oh, there's no real set morals, so we have to be bold enough. We have to be the new gods and create the yeah, own rules exactly. of existence, which... Uh, I would go on about that, but that's not the point right now. Uh, right. Just suffice it to say, anything you can create is not bigger than you, and therefore if it's not bigger than you, you can't genuinely believe in it and let it rule you. You'll just find it arbitrary. And so just practically, psychologically, realistically, men cannot make their own morals and have them actually be transcendent and meaningful. Mm-hmm. So I just I don't believe in that whole idea that people would make their own world. No. Well, not anymore. Ridiculous. But you used to. Uh, Yes. No. And even that world you just described me now was obviously incoherent. How did I have that nihilistic point of view, but then also believe that voluntarism and consent were meaningful moral principles that you had to abide by? It it just, it was a lot of cognitive dissonance and a lot of being 19 years old. Uh, (laughs) So just silliness. So I went to university. I was studying political, no, communication studies. Right. Which the joke is I wasn't a sorority girl or student athlete, so I really couldn't continue in the major, and that's why I didn't. Um, (laughs) 
I was a communication studies major, but I took the class at my university, Introduction to Russian Literature, which was the big change your life class. And unironically, class did change my life because I got to form a strong relationship with the professor who taught it, became very close with him. And we read Anna Karenina, we read Brothers Karamazov, and reading that Russian literature, it was just so obvious from the caliber of the art that these authors, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, knew so much more about life and how to live and how people work and the nature of your psychology and your soul than I did. And so I was blown away by that. And so the power of the art and its insight made me think, okay, you know, life isn't just voluntarism and <laughs> consent. There's more to understanding these things and how people work. And there is a human nature that's more fixed than it isn't. And so this opened me up to more, but I still didn't believe in God because that's a ridiculous concept. Right. So I had this cognitive dissonance of... I validate that these Russian literary masters were absolutely correct about the way people work, but they credit it all to God, an understanding of man through God and religion. But they were wrong about God because God's a crock of nonsense. <laughs> and so somehow they were right about everything but wrong about the biggest thing. And I was wrong about everything, but I was right about the biggest thing. And that made no sense. But that's what I thought at the time. And then this mentor turned me on to Thomas Sowell's books. So I read his economics, his sociology. And that opened me up to the idea of, okay, a conservative economics that takes into account culture mm -hmm. and doesn't just view people as blasted, individualized little widgets. So then my libertarianism kind of came crumbling down a little bit in that direction. Ooh, turns out immigration policy does matter. Ooh, it turns out that culture <laughs> can be affected by government. And you kind of need to preserve a culture through some aspects of government. Oh, mm -hmm. interesting. Oh, it turns out that that neoconservative perspective that you could just make any society like any other society if you just put the ingredients of liberty into it doesn't work because the people aren't interchangeable because history matters and people exist in it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> really obvious stuff, but, you know, it took me too long to learn it. So I really <laughs> loved the uh, Thomas Sowell alongside Russian literature stuff. So, okay, now I'm a conservative, but I'm a conservative atheist. <laughs> which is a very annoying breed of person because it's you're so close, but then so far. Right. And then you're in the movement and you're an ally, but then on its fundamental basis of God and understanding human nature there, you miss the boat, but you demand to be accepted and let in. So now you're kind of poisoning the well. It's like libertarians with conservatism in general, but it's like... Just, it's a little bit less awful than that because libertarians won't let you do anything. Right. Conservative atheists just won't let you make the final repair of saying we need God in the culture. Yeah. But aside from all of that, that's going well far ahead. Um, as I was leaving university, this professor gave me the final gift of a recommendation, which was to read Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind. So, Which you recommended to me. I read... I'm realizing now how many books I've read in the last year and a half. I'm actually really proud of myself given yeah. that I have a baby and that's really hard to do. But because of book club and because of a few of your recommendations, um, this is totally off track, but I just wanted to mention, I really enjoyed The Righteous Mind. I did a video on it on my channel um, because I think that it is so important to read. But continue. No, it's all good. It is absolutely essential reading. It is the user manual and understanding... Yeah basic the philosophical underpinnings of things but i would say even more the psychological underpinnings yeah because the philosophy leads into how people build their emotions and expectations of how the world works mm -hmm. and then that's what you're going to be that's like their operating system as a person their emotions i must be able to express myself this is trauma to me because it denies my sense of authenticity blah 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 blah, blah. yeah uh going back. Uh, <laughs> so the last recommendation he gave me was The Righteous Mind, and I read it when I was in Thailand. So I graduated, or I finished classwork early 
from college so that I could go to Thailand for three months because I was really into Muay Thai, Thai kickboxing when I was in college. I started with boxing, but then the boxing program was actually kind of dinky and more of a fitness boxing thing. And there was a crew of people at the gym that I was at that were doing actual Muay Thai and would go to competitions and did a national tournament called, or I guess it's an international tournament because the darn Canadians are always there. Apparently <laughs> it's like a thing, like Canadians and Canadian Muay Thai is a thing. Those dang Canadians. Those dang Canadians and the so-called Canadian knee, which is really just to rack up points, but doesn't really do effective damage when you're in the clinch. It's a whole thing. Uh, <laughs> it was a tournament called the Iowa Classic. So they'd go and they'd be decently successful. And the head coach for the team, awesome guy who's a quote, friend he's great so I joined this crew got really taken within I was like well I don't want to be at college any longer than I have to be so I might as well go to Thailand and get a chance to train when would I ever be able to do that otherwise because I was starting to apply for law schools right and when the heck am I going to go from law school to being able to be in Thailand training kickboxing or something yeah exactly. so I did that I was over there for three months one month in a gym two months as a tourist cool so I'm reading this book while I'm there and there's a term in 19th century Russian literature, brain fever. <laughs> it's more a literary device than anything else. It just describes a character having intense kind of emotional, like, not mania, but like emotional revelations or whatever. And so he has a fever and he's on the couch. And it's the kind of thing that they end up going to, like, the spa baths in some Austrian Alp city uh, for a, a section of like the novel. Sounds a lot like situational anxiety, but okay. <laughs> no, it's not anxiety. It's just you're, you're overcome with the gravity of thoughts or something. Yeah. So it was either me reading this book and having that happen to me or finally having my check get cashed for not having any food poisoning up until that point in Thailand eating street food. <laughs> uh, you decide, given my white boy Ashkenazic stomach where I couldn't handle spicy food, <laughs> before going to Thailand and eating street food and drinking rural water at a remote boxing camp that had livestock there. Yeah. Uh, 600-pound pig who roamed around the gym was awesome. <laughs> uh, but all that aside, uh, the book had a tremendous impact on me. And now, though, book's about moral psychology. So it's about a psychological approach to how we understand morality. And I... Not going to give the book in brief here, but there is a great moment in the book where the author, Jonathan Haidt, says he's talking about the way societies are formed and how we share values. And he says, imagine going to a football game, a major football game. You see everyone tailgating outside. You see them painting their faces and their chests and the colors of their team. You see them wearing the jersey, singing the songs. You see little kids being initiated in the cult of their team. And then you see everyone in the stadium cheering and losing their minds whenever a thing is scored. And imagine thinking that that is actually because of the movement on the ball in the field. <laughs> right? It, it, this would not happen. This would not be there but for the ball moving on the field in the particular way it is. It is uniquely that that's causative versus there's something underlying people that makes them want to express these things in these forms and find something to coalesce around. Mm -hmm. So, okay, that was, that was a very well done pitch. Um, the author had lived in India in a very traditional section of the country for a while, and he was one of those liberal, atheist, secular Jews who came from, I believe, New York. So he has that background, and he'd never been around people living a pretty pre-modern life before, not necessarily in terms of technology, but just they unironically valued the religion and social bounds and didn't think of themselves first and foremost in what I aspire to and what I want to be. <laughs> and so this was revelatory to him, the way that this life worked and how fulfilling and meaningful it was and so he wanted to write a book about it and he did and he wrote this and i'm reading it while i'm living in thailand 
where there's a society I'm surrounded by that I have no ability to interact with uh, on a meaningful level because I'm a Western white guy in Thailand and these people are all within their own communities and own society, but I could observe it. Mm -hmm. I could observe how it worked. And that had a tremendous impact on me. And so now I could believe in the idea of God as kind of, uh, I used a metaphor of like a lighthouse so that people in a society would know not to drift too far out to sea, but also not dash themselves on like a rocky uh, coastline, like, or like a gravitational force so that you could be orbiting it around together instead of flying off in all directions or colliding. I had a few metaphors that I was using. <laughs> the whole point here is that now I could believe in the idea of God uh, as useful. Right. I couldn't believe in God, but I could believe he was useful. He was a good tool. Yeah. And then from there, I go on to my first year in law school. And right as I was studying for final exams for my first semesters, when Jordan Peterson had his first real big interview with Joe Rogan, and so I happened upon it and listened to it all three hours or so all at once. And that was like another bout of brain fever because <laughs> it was revelatory. And the funny thing is for all the Jordan Peterson content, the very Jordan Peterson-iness of the man, it was his presentation of basic like Aristotelian arguments for, well, there has to be one unitary god at the head of all creation, obviously, and things have to have a fixed nature, duh. And then he goes into the Peterson-y bits about the psychological accuracy of the Bible, and then he goes even further into the archetypes. It was the Aristotelian argument thing, and then elements of the psychological accuracy of the Bible, because, ooh, now I can believe man had a fixed nature, and then here's Jordan Peterson explaining how that nature is clearly very well understood by the Bible. It is accurate on a deep level about the way people are. That really got through to me. And so from there, things kind of spun out, and I now could believe, unironically, in the idea of God. Because prior to that, I had what I call the John Stewart presentation of God. I don't know that I ever heard John Stewart talk about this. It's just, I associate his name with it, which is the, oh, you believe in a sky man? Old guy with a beard throwing lightning bolts if you don't say the right magic words in a prayer and worship him? Wow, how primitive. You know, like Christopher Hitchens condescending uh, heaven as a celestial North Korea kind of point of view. I never had a philosophical presentation of the idea of God. Not in all my years of going to a reformed synagogue, which is a big basis of my distaste for reformed <laughs> Judaism. But that aside, <laughs> now I could believe in God, and the question is, what revelation would it be? I actually attended an evangelical church on some Sundays for a few months because uh, I was surrounded by Christians, and they were very nice people. And I had read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and it seemed like, oh, Christianity is very psychologically accurate. Maybe I could go in for that. But the more time I spent with it, the more I realized that I'd never given Judaism a chance. And being raised in a Jewish household, having Jewish lineage, thinking of myself as a Jew— how could I possibly accept that, well, Judaism's pretty much true in terms of the Jews are a chosen people, and they were given revelation by God and anointed as a chosen people, but then they were wrong at a certain point, and now we're going to go in this direction. How could I validate Christianity without giving Judaism a chance first, right? And so I stopped going to the church, I started going to the local Chabad, and I was interested in exploring this. And I was liking, from my conservative background, from my Thomas Sowell sociology and econ background, the idea of intense rules and tradition and rootedness of things. Oh, it seems so psychologically accurate. It seems so community-oriented and like it really placed you in the context of things. I was liking all of that. And as I was exploring this, 
is around the time that I met Abigail, and that's its own full story, um, which we have said before on her channel. Yes. <laughs> but that was when I was like, I'd already started to commit myself to Judaism, and now there's this wonderful Jewess who I had met and wanted to date and commit to, and um, I had the context for everything. I wanted to run with it. So that's the background for my coming to religiosity and conservatism. So once I was married, taking seriously the idea of my commitment to Abigail and the idea of our commitment to our values and really what it meant to be religious and to value God and to have the sense of mission of God has us here to do particular things. The first most abstract is to honor him and serve him by making the world more in the image of his intention for his creation. That's very abstract. What's fortunate is that God has given us the manual through the Bible and also through the thousands of years of tradition of interpreting it for what that looks in concrete steps. At the most basic level, it's maintain your traditions as a people of knowing God as the font of everything and the first and foremost most important thing and raise your family to honor God and do that and live dignified lives and raise your kids to be good moral people who believe these things and have a strong and successful community of charitable and virtuous and kind people who are strong in their knowledge of their ways and strong in their ability to resist outside things that would try and disrupt your lifestyle either by force or by subverting your values or by basically taking your kids from you through like what happens in the public schools to everyone who's a conservative now. Just all these things. The more we were together and married, the more we realized all of the really crappy things. That's as far as we're going to go with cusses on this podcast. So I'll use crap quite often. Uh, (laughs) The really crappy things in our culture that subvert and degrade and tarnish people's understanding of what's most important in life and what infect you with just a very terrible mentality to make you an unhappy person who feels entitled to do the things that make you unhappy and entitled to demand of other people that they validate you in the crappy things you do and kind of lower themselves to your level as well. And that applies to a lot of things, but one of the best examples is the whole trans thing happening at kids right now. Yeah. Just brutally unhappy people whose mentalities have been subverted by a toxic ideology who, because of the nature of how this works, have the need to ruin your life and compromise your values just to recognize that they exist and then also go after your kids too. And they basically reproduce by conversion. Right. It's, uh, it's a horrible mess. And that is one of the furthest examples of this stuff. But it exists everywhere, even with like the casual promiscuity in everything. The casual need to make everything just mere personal preference of, well, this brings me pleasure, therefore it's good. I, all that stuff. We just The more we realized how significant it means to be married, how much we love each other, and how much stuff distracts from that, and the joy, the deep and abiding joy that we have... We're like, oh my god, this is horrific. And Abby started her channel because she has her conservative values. She started her channel, and we would discuss her content because I'm her husband. I'm her partner. Of course I'm all in on the brand and helping her with it, uh, such as by doing this podcast now. (laughs) But uh, the more we were discussing it, the more we realized what we were reacting against. And it's not just affirming and putting forth your message. It's also understanding how your message as a classic woman for Abby is going to sound to the ears of people drugged on this very toxic culture. And so I realized, yeah, very quickly that saying something as obvious as getting married and having children is a positive good in the world would be controversial in 2020 and now 2022. It can't just be that, well, it's a preference some people would like. No, 
saying it's good, that is going too far. You have to reduce it to mere preference. Yeah. And it was our realization that things that we think are capital T true, regardless of how we feel about it, but capital T true, like it is good to be married. It is good to have children. It is good to raise your children to love you and honor you and to want to be married and have children of their own and to have a sense of duty and responsibility to a culture and a community and that they are accountable for choosing the right ones, presumably the ones that you raise them in. All that stuff we think is capital T true and nothing is allowed to be true anymore. Everything has to be mere preference and self-expression. So the more we realize just how far afield our values were from a lot of what's pumped out there it's the mainstream the more the content that abby was producing and that we would talk about went in the direction of really getting to the heart of this stuff and wanting to dissect that and do that so it wasn't just abby doing makeup tips anymore now it was addressing why the very concept of beauty was under attack why but i was at the beginning of my channel being controversial just saying hello beautiful ladies yeah. that ended up becoming hello classic crew just because my content did shift and did start to um, address more men as well as women but initially i i did start my channel saying hello beautiful ladies to say this is for women i'm doing makeup content yeah. this is not for men <laughs> as my as my channel changed and i started making different content then it changed but that was my initial thought yeah um, but I think that exactly what you're saying, and I'll talk about it a little bit in my story and from my perspective, I think our marriage was really a tipping point for both of us. It in changing. Us. We've talked a lot about how where the point we're at now is not because one one side pushed the other side to become more right wing or more conservative. It was really the two of us together discussing these ideas, living our lives in this modern era that made us kind of together grow in this direction of we want to be more religious, we want to be more conservative, we want to live more traditional lives. Yeah. Being married radicalized us. I'm just speaking about me right now. And the way that it occurred is that Abby and I would say that we believe in God. We would say that the Jewish values are our values. And then when we weren't living up to them or our mentalities were to refer to Carl Truman's book, Expressive Individualist, you know, that mentality of life is about authenticity and being me and doing what I want, and this doesn't spark joy, so I shouldn't have to do it. When we would reflexively have that response to things, because we're coming from the mainstream culture in a lot of ways, the other one of us would stop and say, I mean, but we believe in God. Is that really what you think? Is that really the way you want to live? And we would, in a very positive way, challenge each other to actually think through how we were living and systematically adjust and reprioritize and try and live more godly lives and we wouldn't our, we let our marriage be a way that we would spur each other to be better more driven and moral people rather than just keep each other happy in that debased way that we've referred to it and, and one so, of the things yeah. and and i want to just go off that and say we often grew in seeing in the other person the things we didn't <laughs> this sounds negative but it's it's actually a positive seeing in the other person the things we didn't like in ourselves. So if I saw yeah. Jacob using his phone too much, and I would think, you know, I do that. I do that and I don't like it. And so we would have a conversation which wasn't, you're using your phone too much. This isn't what we, you know, believe. This isn't good for us. It was, you know, I use my phone a lot. I noticed that you use your phone a lot too. This is something we should both work on. We're still working on it, but... <laughs> yeah, well, the phone <laughs> thing is more of physical compulsion. But, uh, yeah. Dopamine pathways and all that. But... <laughs> 
it it really pushed us to prioritize how we wanted to live and then think of all the things that would pull us away from that and have us justify not right, living it forced a more us like, to justify. Oh, well, I want it, or this makes me feel unheard or unseen. Like just all those crappy modern, overly therapeutic. My therapist gave me this script kind of talk, and then I mean, Abby's and I have been in this direction for a while. But I will tell you, the last approximately six months, I guess five months since we've had our son, have only accelerated that mentality because we understand so deeply what it means to be committed to being the parent to this boy and the responsibility that's there. As we say, we are no longer the protagonists. We are now background establishing context characters for his story because <laughs> he's the rising generation. And we feel that acutely. We feel acutely the intergenerational responsibility and duty and obligation and transference and what we owe him and then what he'll owe us in terms of honor and Mission, fidelity to mission, so that he will have children and we can continue it along. But that's and it's also kind of the so arc. important. Yeah. yeah, that is your arc. I should, yeah. I shouldn't change the subject again. Yeah, <laughs> I just want to say so. All of that is where we come from. It's where I come from when we talk about what it means to be classic. It's growing up. I love my parents dearly, but there was not this transference. I was atheist as libertarian, and my parents uh, now are very happy about where I've ended up with things, but they were worried about me when I was in high school and college, being libertarian, being an atheist, being a degenerate, and they didn't know how it had happened because they're very practical people. So they were focused on work. They were focused on having good times with me. They were very successful, so we had wonderful times. We would go do cool things. They were very doting, but they didn't pass on ideas. And so it was living poorly, making bad decisions, immoral decisions that I feel embarrassed about now, uh, and kind of uh, failing upwards. Um, well, yeah, I'd say failing upwards because I ended up with Abigail, so that's failing upwards because <laughs> I was only really starting to turn the mend uh, around the time that I met her and become serious about really thinking about these things and becoming a conservative, no longer being the atheist, radical, libertarian I was. But it was coming from that background, being so brutally unhappy, being so unable to explain the world and understand it, but feeling so entitled to my worldview and thinking was so right. All that failed me. And when I came to this perspective, yes, I realized human nature is pretty fixed and that traditional religion really understands human nature quite well and how to live successfully, but not just in a preference way, that's fundamentally true. And I believe that. I believe that's our mission to fall through with this and work our lives to serve God in that way. And then from believing that, working with Abigail once we were married to actually move our lives in that direction. So it's very much a work in progress for us. We have no position of expertise. But as I said before, we are enthusiastic amateurs. We're hobbyists at this who have dead. Well, Abby's a professional because this literally is her income. Uh, <laughs> but we're enthusiastic amateurs in the sense of we're doing it alongside you, you who listen. It's just that we spend an inordinate amount of time trying to think about how to vocalize this stuff so that people can make use of it. But also, and this is what I was going to say before, is that you'll hear it in my story in a minute. But for both of us, I think we had questions that weren't answered growing up. And so much of our response to that has been because we want to provide answers for our children when they have questions. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to be able to answer everything, but even being on the path of trying to understand it ourselves so that when our children come to us with those questions, we can at least say, oh, we've thought about it and we want to talk about it with you so that our kids have the uh, the knowledge that their parents care about their 
their moral well-being mm-hmm. is uh, is a really important thing for us. Well, just because we can't give an answer doesn't mean we can't try and source someone who can yeah. or point them in a direction for inquiry, which is a nice thing about uh, Judaism broadly. I know a lot of Jews whose questions were not answered growing up and were treated too much like the stereotype of the Catholic uh, nun who just would slap your hand with a ruler if you <laughs> had a question. I'm not saying that's the reality. I'm saying the stereotype here. Yeah. Um, but broadly, it's a question-asking religion because part of our mission is to mix judgment with God's creation to try and serve it. And so, you know, if you have a question, good, you're using the mind that God gave you. You should be accomplishing godly ends with it. Your rationality should bring you back to that point. But you can earn it, and you get bonus points for that. <laughs> so my story, uh, I wouldn't say it's as linear and as good of a narrative as Jacob's is, but... It still led me here, so it's relevant. I grew up in a modern Orthodox home. Um, My parents raised us religious. I went to Jewish day schools. But my parents are still boomers in a sense. (laughs) Um, They were very much into the idea of following your dreams, which is not something that I actually am a big proponent of anymore. Nor I. But was something that I, I grew up with. And I also was not really part of a community growing up. Even though we lived in a Jewish community, um, we didn't participate quite as much when I was a kid. And so I didn't have a huge support system or network of the Jewish community that I'd been kind of promised. Uh, That's what you're told is a huge important part of being Jewish, of being religious. I went to Jewish day schools and and I did learn a lot. And I think it's actually very important to have a Jewish J school background because like like me if you decide to go off the derech is the phrase but really what it means is kind of go off the path and stop being religious for a while at least you have all of the practical knowledge of what you need to know if you want to become religious again so I grew up liking being religious not really thinking anything of it thinking okay this is what it is this is how I live my life I'm proud to be different. I've always been proud to be different. So that was something that attracted me to being a religious Jew is being around non-Jews and having, you know, oh yeah, I have this lifestyle you've never heard about. Let me tell you a little bit about it. I thought that was very cool. I'm not like other girls. (laughs) Exactly. And so when I went to college for opera was the first time that A, I was in a non-Jewish community. I was in a non-Jewish circle. I was li- I was living around non-Jews. And B, I was doing something that was quote-unquote following my dreams, but pretty much in direct conflict with being religious. Because if you're going to be a performer, there's a lot of things that are going to not allow you to practice your religion. Number one being Sabbath, uh, Shabbos. I wouldn't be able to perform on Friday nights, which is going to be a really big problem since opera is usually performed two nights a week, Tuesdays and Fridays. So half of the time I wouldn't be able to perform. And modesty was an issue. I would be costumed in things that I didn't necessarily feel comfortable in. And the kind of inappropriate touch would be an issue because opera tends to be pretty scandalous these days. People want to make it more interesting by introducing sex onto the stage. So you'd be staged into performing things that were not appropriate. And all of that was really at odds with... Uh, There's also the meta concern, the lifestyle 
travel. Yes, there's the meta concern of, of, which didn't come into play yet because I wasn't thinking about, I mean, I was always thinking about marriage and kids, but I wasn't thinking about it at really in that same way. Yeah. But yes, you, you the, thought of it, well, that's a thing that you do, but you had no direct personal intention or understanding of its relevance to your life. Yeah, exactly. So in there's the meta narrative, like what Jacob said, of you're traveling all the time. You have to be incredibly careful thinking of yourself as an athlete for your health. So if you are, if your family is sick, you need to quarantine away from them. This is in the days before COVID, just so that you wouldn't get sick yourself and prevent yourself be, from being able to perform and then being able to make a living. Uh, you had to be really careful about what you ate, when you ate, so that you didn't get acid reflux and it get on your cords and then you'd have a sore throat the next day and you're not able to perform. I mean, this was a lifestyle that was really stressful and also not conducive to a married, happy life so i was in that forget for... marriage what are you going to do with the child exactly having having kids baby either travels with you while you're in multi-hour rehearsals and is in a hotel room somewhere and then the dad never gets to see the baby or the dad has to single parent the baby at home while he's working or you traveling. assume your husband is uh, gonna work remotely constantly and follow you around which yes, is which the I dream scenario i was gonna say that's the dream scenario for many opera singers who think that they can make this work and it's not really realistic so i was in the opera world for seven years. I did that for four years at the University of Southern California. And then when I went to the Manhattan School of Music, that was when things really came to a head. Because at the University of Southern California, I had been able to convince them not to let me perform on Friday nights. When I went to the Manhattan School of Music, I was cast in a main role in my first year, which was pretty, it's pretty rare to be cast in the first, in your first year of your master's because usually they cast in the second year of their master's people who are more experienced. So that was a really big coup. And the director called me and told me that I would not be able to accept the role if I didn't perform on Friday or at least make myself available to perform on Friday. In that moment, I decided that I wanted to perform on Friday night. And that was really the beginning of me just losing my way because I put opera, I put performance ahead of really everything else and thought, okay, well, this is going to bring me meaning and fulfillment. Pursuing my dream to its ultimate heights is going to bring me meaning and fulfillment when it became very clear over time that that was not the case. How much but time? It took a while. I was in for my first year, I was still trying to keep Sabbath. I was walking to rehearsals. I didn't bring my phone. I was keeping Sabbath as much as I could so that I could be participatory. And then by the second year, really what happened is that I started dating some guys who were Jewish who were very bad. And when... What does bad mean? Well, they, they treated me really poorly. Um, and in treating me poorly... I thought to myself, how can they be considered orthodox? How can they be considered religious if they're not treating people well? And if they're not keeping the, the they're keeping the letter of the law, but not the heart of the law. Well, they're not even keeping the letter of the law because the law asks you not to be abusive to others, not to be immoral, not to do a variety of these things. And this is a distinction. 
not directed at you, but when people, because I have a lot of Christian friends, and I love my Christian friends dearly, but to say that they don't know anything about Judaism, so many of them, while thinking that they do, <laughs> that's an understatement. It is the, the gap between actual knowledge and their perception of knowledge on my religion, massive. Yeah. I love you all dearly. It's the case. And <laughs> so they would make the mistake of thinking that all that Judaism asks of people is ritual law. Right. You know, the, the magic hocus pocus stuff with the animals and sweating their throats and obsessive compulsive disorder kind of looking stuff. And then Jesus was the one who came along and invented the idea that Jews should be moral. No. No, bro, not at all. <laughs> Judaism stringently requires that you be moral. And yes, people can be doing the ritual law and absolutely failing at the moral component. And yes, they're absolutely failing at being a Jew. That's like saying, well, if someone pays all of their taxes but then beats their wife, how could they possibly be violating the law? They followed all of the rules about their taxes. <laughs> yeah, but you're also not allowed to beat your wife. Right. And so it's a similar thing. You can call yourself Orthodox. You can, in public spaces where people can observe your ritual action, be doing it all right. And then if people don't know that you're being a piece of crap, uh, they don't know to judge you or not associate with you. But that's a problem any community or any religion can have. And when it comes to, because again, with the Christians, uh, you know, oh, well, what's more important, the ritual law or the moral law? Uh, to a Jew, that question is kind of like asking, what's the most important part of baking a cake? Mixing the ingredients together or putting it in the oven? It's an incomprehensible question. You do not have a cake unless you do both steps. So too, it is our perspective. <laughs> if you're not doing both, you're not doing Judaism. God has asked us to do both. That's just as simple as it gets. Yeah. So if you're failing the moral part, no one cares how ritualistically accurate you are. Yeah. But at the time, I really only saw these two guys are treating me really, really scarily badly. And they are they consider themselves Orthodox and they are in the Orthodox community. That must mean Orthodox Judaism is bad. And their public reputation was such that people didn't know to treat them as bad guys. So they're yeah. swimming in these waters, socially successful. And so how is there a wolf in sheep's clothing if this religion really is uh, what it's cracked up to be? Exactly. So it's interesting because up until that point, I was still keeping Sabbath as much as I could in that situation. But that was really the point in which I said, you know, I'm already doubting that Orthodox Judaism makes sense because it's preventing me from following my dreams. Now and my I'm dreams are what's so important for happiness. And what is a life if you're not living happily following your dreams? Like it's, right. it's a it's few a steps bunch of the priority here. Absolutely. And then on top of that, okay, well, now not even the community, not even the people are good. Not even what I'm supposed to be gaining from being Orthodox is good. So I might as well not keep anything at all. Now, it wasn't like I ever stopped believing in God. I always believed in God, but I didn't necessarily believe that all of these rules, quote unquote, were important to my meaning and purpose. So I... And, well, if I recall, if I recall correctly, sorry, I can't lean away from the mic too much. Um, <laughs> if I recall correctly, you also had the perspective that once you had stopped keeping the Sabbath and stopped keeping uh, several of the laws, that you couldn't come back to your relationship with God in a relevant way because you would either have to do everything perfectly again or 
you wouldn't be accepted. God wouldn't love you. You can't enter into that. And so yeah, you I couldn't was... take steps. You couldn't take steps backwards. You would have to do the whole thing at once. And you didn't want to do the whole thing at once. So you felt very closed off. Yes. And that was a hard one for me because my relationship with God, I felt like I couldn't continue to maintain unless I was keeping everything. Because if I'm not keeping everything, then what am I even doing to to show respect to my creator was how I felt. So I stopped keeping Sabbath. I kept I kept kosher in a sense and then kind of less and less over time. And what I started to realize was that I really had never gotten answers to why I was religious, like why I believed in God and why I believed Orthodox Judaism was the right path. And so I just was doing it kind of by rote. And especially when I was coming up these against these really hard questions, I wasn't finding answers. So I just sort of stopped. I just said, okay, whatever. Well, where and, were you looking? And when I say I, I wasn't finding answers, I mean I wasn't finding answers in my own past knowledge. Uh. I didn't take time to really try and find answers, but I was like, oh, well, I never got an answer to this question, so... Eh, there must not be one. Would it surprise you to know that when I was a high school atheist who thought he was so brilliant, I thought of similar challenges to the idea of religion that I then promptly never followed up on <laughs> because I would think of things like, well, if God wants us to live a certain way, and these were primarily aimed at uh, like uh, what I call like Disneyland Christianity, which mm -hmm. is not Christianity itself, but like the... Uh, mainstream cultural slurry served up to you by non-religious people or non-christians about christianity you know mm -hmm. john stewart uh mm -hmm. presentation god like well if god wants you to live a certain way and you haven't come across his revelation given to a prophet because you live in a jungle somewhere then you were just born to go to hell <laughs> and so checkmate theist how could a moral god have you be born in a position where you could never even come across his word if the word is what you need to be saved i will never look into this or assume anyone else has ever addressed this question case closed <laughs> yeah pretty much um not not with the atheist perspective but just with the uh the observant perspective so what ended up happening was that i i knew that i wanted to have a connection to my my Judaism and I knew that I wanted to raise my kids Jewish <laughs> it sounds funny right because I wasn't keeping everything that I wanted to raise my children with but I knew that there was something to it that was important I just didn't know kind of how yet so I knew I was going to marry a Jew and I knew that by the time I was raising my children I wanted to be keeping the laws again but I still didn't really know how any of that was going to happen <laughs> And so that was when I met Jacob, really, was when I was still in a very large uh, area of confusion. I didn't necessarily understand exactly what I, what I thought and what I believed, but I knew I needed to marry a Jew, and I knew I needed to raise my kids Jewish and be Orthodox by the time they were born. That was like, the, that was the plan. I, I didn't have an, a, a good order. reason for it, though. Yeah. It, was, it was very weird. And what was so fascinating about this is that my, my demands were what Jacob needed when we met. And you, having gone through everything you did to get to the point in which you believed in God, was what I needed. I needed your views and perspectives to teach me what, why I wanted these things, why it was that I wanted to marry a Jew. Like, I knew it was, it was a weird internal 
okay, pull, that I need to do this, that I need to have a Jewish family. But I didn't know why I had that pull. And talking to Jacob, he was the one who told me why. He, he gave me, he kind of allowed through percolation all of his uh, revelations to, to clarify things for me. And I offered you the opportunity to say, okay, this is how we're going to live our life. This is how you live those things out in practice. And so, yeah, with your practical side of knowledge and background, exactly able to give voice to that. And so the two of us together, and this is kind of the end of my, of my story of how we got to this classic living and traditional values place was we grew together to understand what it meant to have a traditional values and have classic living. And as we, we kind of went through the journey of our marriage as we're continuing to do, I started to realize a lot more about why following my dreams was not important to me finding purpose and fulfillment, actually made those things less easy to attain, and that being a homemaker, being a wife, being a mother, those were things that were bringing me joy and happiness much more than this lifestyle that precluded me having children and being a wife in a way that really would have brought me fulfillment. So a few things to that. The first is Abby and I have discussed, well, of course we've discussed this before, but now we're discussing it in public, (laughs) um, how truly providential it was for us to meet when we did, because given my perspective on things, because I met Abigail in May of 2017, and that Jordan Peterson interview that I mentioned was in December of 2016. So really, I had only encountered the very content that put me in the path to believe in God six months prior. And in that six months is when I was attending that church, and then I was exploring these things, and then ultimately decided I wanted to explore Judaism. But prior to that, atheist, right? Atheist with strong conservative principles and with a sympathy for God and religion, but very much an atheist because religion was a crock of nonsense. And so if I had met Abigail prior to then, uh uh-uh, wouldn't have worked because I would not be a person who was in a position to be palatable to her in terms of wanting to be a Jew and explore that life and really be that with her. And she would not have been appealing to me because, well, she was only going to ultimately end up with a religious Jew, and I wouldn't have wanted that. And so that was unbelievably fortuitous. From my perspective, and I think this is what you were going to say, I was not really religious when we met in the sense that I wasn't observant. And had we met a year before, you would not have been a possibility for me because I would have said, oh, he's not religious. He's not, I mean, you would have been an atheist at the time. But also, he's not religious and he doesn't want that. When we met, I was more open to dating somebody who was at a similar stage as I was. Where, okay, we're in a stage of discovery. We're going to go on a path together to get to the place where I want to be. I know the end point. I don't know how we're going to get there. And that really allowed us to grow as a couple. And I'm so grateful for that. Yeah. Uh, Another thing I was going to mention uh, with regard to what you were saying about how dreams were not what was going to give you anything is we've discussed before the idea of like feminist memes Mm -hmm. and it's like a funny way to say things well memes just the funny joke thing on the internet but a meme is just it's a it's an idea that cuts to the quick 
that is easily reproduced and spread around and so can end up forming like a default reaction or idea in your head. And so in this context where like I trace it back to Sex in the City, although obviously this stuff goes much further back and Abby's done some videos and content on the women's liberation movement and its Marxist origins, but all of this is just to say that the meme that takes hold in especially young women's heads of well, the idea of what my life will look like with career and with this stuff, the idea of who I would be, that's amazing. I could be successful. I could be admired. I could be so cool. It's not the reality of the life as lived. Very alone. Basically a permanent renter. Traveling a lot. No roots. And no love. And that's really the big thing here is there's no actual love. There's cool stuff to be admired by third parties, presumably who don't know you, probably over social media, or if you're an opera singer by the audience, but the actual quality of the life as lived, the day-to-day, -day, not great. It's um, like the distinction between someone who wants to be a writer versus someone who wants to do writing. Yeah. Very big difference. Do you want to be an actor or do you want to do acting? <laughs> and so when people say follow your dreams, yeah, the idea that a dream once attained is a status, an idea of yourself that'd be happy, is very different from everything that goes into it and all the sacrifices that come along the way. And you are so much better off finding actual rooted meaning and fulfillment of purpose in love. There's nothing that makes Abigail and me happier at this point than what we do for our son and seeing how what we do for him benefits him. Anything I do for me... Any video game I play, movie I watch, thing I drink or eat or exercise I do, anything I achieve in my career, none of the, anything that's my own desire, pleasure, joy, advantage, anything that's the stuff that motivates people in that sense has nothing to do with my happiness by comparison to seeing my son smile when I do something for him. Yeah. And when people say, oh, well, that's just your son validating you with a smile because that's the way I would have responded when I was 18, well... If I do something good for my son when he's asleep and I get no credit for it, that makes me happy <laughs> because I genuinely love him for his own sake. Yeah. And anything I do for him in the direction of what is good with a capital G for him is far more joy bringing and life affirming and sustaining and fulfilling than anything I do for me. And that's the love that these so-called dreams too often box out. Yeah. If you can have it all of like, oh, interesting career. And then also family, where you're really like doing everything you should for your family, great. No one's saying you shouldn't do both if you can. It's just that everyone else lives in the real world where they're gonna butt heads at some point. Go figure. So if you have to choose, how do you choose is the question that Abby is making content to answer and had to realize for herself first. Yeah, and one of the things that I, I should mention is that uh, because I my mom worked and my dad stayed at home, I didn't have a model of homemaking, traditional life in that sense. And classic, like the, the way I talk about being a classic woman. My mom was grew up in, in a very feminist world where wearing makeup to work was bad. And being a woman in the workplace, you kind of had to try and erase that. So you wanted to act like a man. And I needed to learn on my own and, and try and kind of share with you my journey so that hopefully someone else can learn it, how to be a woman in 2022, how to embrace femininity, embrace womanhood, not eschew it, not hide it, but actually 
take it seriously and love it and adore it. And so when I talk about being a wife and talk about being a mother and talk about how much I love those things, it's coming from a place of I've had to understand it myself. You've had to earn it. I've had to earn it. And this is a different version of my of of my journey in Judaism, right? It's like the flip side is that my journey in Judaism, I had to answer those questions. My journey in womanhood, I've had to answer those questions. I've had to understand it myself so that I can then I get that opportunity to share it with you guys because this isn't something that I just grew up with and okay, well, that's fine and easy. I've really had to understand it myself so that I can understand why I love it so much, why it's so important, and how why I live my life is actually good and true and and all of that. Yeah. Um, a reference I like to make because I thought it was very funny. So Donald Trump, when he had COVID and then he recovered from it, he took Regeneron amongst <laughs> other medications. He cut that video where he was talking up Regeneron and saying how great it was and how he recovered. So uh, an anti-Trump political action group called the Lincoln Project, who I dislike heartily, there are a bunch of former Republican strategists who did the thing where they jumped ship to the Democrats because they realized that they could make money as the token Republicans. Uh, their nonsense aside, the one good thing they ever did was they cut a joke attack parody at Trump where they took his Regeneron video and they made it seem like a 1980s scam infomercial. <laughs> and it's actually very funny because, uh, you know, Trump's vibe, of course, works well with that. Mm-hmm. And so just there's that line where he says, I want you to get what I got because it works so great for me or something to that equivalent. <laughs> uh, that's... That's our that's, that, that's, that's our, our pitch. We want you to get what we got because it works so great for us. <laughs> Regeneron. Regeneron. <laughs> or marriage. Yeah. <laughs> if we were full trends of classic Returneron. <laughs> so that's kind of our story. That's why we are producing this podcast together. Yes. But now it's kind of time for something a little more practical. Let's talk about our classic thought of the week. We want to talk a little bit about exercise and weightlifting, which I recently did an article about on my Substack newsletter for all of you guys. But now we've got the the expert here, <laughs> the guy who knows much more than I do. But I'm back into weightlifting after having our son. And so I've been asking Jacob for all of the different exercises I've been doing. He's been guiding me along the way, which is awesome. And actually, I've really been enjoying it this past week. So why don't you talk a little bit about it? Sure. So to start off, when we talk about me being the relative expert on this, um, no, but (laughs) it works well uh, because this is the direct version of that metaphor I was using before about someone who's doing something as an engaged and enthusiastic amateur who's been doing it for a while and so is familiar with it, shares the same struggle as you, and wants to do it well for himself, and then also share his joy and knowledge on this, as far as he's earned it, with other people, so that they can attempt to prosper as he's attempted to prosper. So I'll have that as background. (laughs) So I very much enjoy weightlifting. I've been weightlifting for a while. I don't look like I've been weightlifting for as long as I have, but that's more a diet issue than anything else. (laughs) I historically did not eat enough to grow. 
because uh, I did not like to eat. So I liked to weight lift. I did not like to fuel it. And so I remained small. <laughs> and now I'm not small, but I'm still not as big as uh, I otherwise should be. You look pretty good to me. Well, I appreciate that, babe. Uh, <laughs> and to the degree that I look good now, it's because I've been doing what I'm about to discuss, which is to say pushing myself. Mm-hmm. Now, that sounds really funny and really banal to say, oh, well, duh, you push yourself in the gym. Yes. But not all versions of the same phrase mean the same thing. So what does push yourself mean? What I mean is actually going close to failure or to failure. This is a revelation for me because for a while, like two years, I had it in my head from looking at studies, looking at videos and studies more like it because I'm not going to read the research myself. But oh, there's so (laughs) many fitness YouTubers who have read the research allegedly and are doing a so-called science-based exercise regimen that it can be very effective to go a few reps shy of failure. And that can be even better than going to failure when you're doing a weightlifting exercise. And so I was doing that. The problem is, what is failure? How close do you know you are to failure? So I made my training so much worse and I was so confused about why it was not so effective by going within three reps of what I thought was failure. No, that was just like three reps of it being tough. Uh, And then the last two weeks, I was looking at the videos of a guy named Jeffrey Verity Schofield, who is a fitness guy on YouTube. Apparently, his channel shot up in the last year. He'd gone from like 10,000 subs to about 80,000. Wow. So good for him. He's a six foot tall Western guy based (laughs) in China. Whatever. He's a bro. Yeah, he's a bro. Yeah, he's a bro. Uh, I like his content. And so he just encourages people to actually like really push themselves and that failure is not the worst thing. So then I challenged myself. I thought, okay, well, let's see what failure is. And I was nowhere near close to failure. On some of the exercises I was doing, like with a certain kind of squat, I was doing sets of nine and I could uh, do 50 pounds more than that for sets of 16 apparently. (laughs) And you would think to yourself, wait, that's insane. You did sets of nine and then could do 50 pounds more for 16 reps? What is going on? Yeah, it turns out tough and not being able to do it anymore are incredibly different concepts. They're incredibly far apart. So far apart. And there's a lot of suck between (laughs) it starts to be tough and you literally cannot do another. But you can do that for a while. So this actually is the stuff that unless you're a dedicated weightlifter, you might not know, which is that tough or hard an exertion is not the same thing as you're about to fail. It could actually, in fact, be quite a while before you genuinely fail. Yeah. So really do push yourself when you work out, because otherwise it will not return things for you. That's I love that advice. That's a really classic thing, because I think that with exercise, especially for women, we don't really know how to do it. <laughs> We're taught... You don't know how to push yourself. We don't know how to push ourselves, but we also don't know how to exercise effectively because we're told to go to bar or go to all these classes that are very expensive and that make you very tired, but don't really grow anything because you're told that you shouldn't grow big muscles. You should tone all lies, things we can talk about at a later date. Yeah. Arnold looked like Arnold because Arnold's genetics and then also Arnold's... Uh, Steroid use. Yeah. I was going to say supplement protocol. Uh, <laughs> Arnold looked like that because it Arnold was his Schwarzenegger job. Arnold Schwarzenegger for yeah. you guys. Well, if we're talking about weightlifting, it's a first name basis. <laughs> but yeah, uh, women are not going to look like a man when they weightlift without the assistance of male hormones. Right. It's just not going to happen, ladies. But 
pushing myself in the last few uh, times that I've exercised has been a huge game changer just because number one, it also makes you feel, it honestly makes you feel so much stronger than you think you are. You're, you get into the gym, you get a little tired, you think I should stop. And then when you push yourself beyond the point of feeling tired, you think to yourself, wow, I could do six more reps than that. I must be stronger than I even think. Mm -hmm. That's great. And then on top of that, the next day when you feel a little sore, it's really awesome. And on top of that, I've never sweat when I've weightlifted before. I've never, ever sweat. And I thought, maybe I'm just weird. Maybe I just don't sweat when I weightlift. And now that I'm actually pushing myself and getting to the point of failure, I'm sweating, I feel good after I exercise, and I feel like I'm actually much more capable than I thought. Mm -hmm. So I highly recommend pushing yourself in the gym to failure, as Jacob is saying. And one of our listeners here mentioned in our last, uh, in my article about this, that she's a competitive bodybuilder. So she- Wait, a competitive weightlifter or bodybuilder? Maybe weightlifter. It's just, it's two extremely different- She probably said weightlifter. I'll have to check, but- for you who are listening, <laughs> she can probably tell us even more about this. So. Oh, 100%. And uh, just to be clear, this is not to say push yourself to failure on every set of every exercise all the time. It is simply to say that you should know what your failure point is, presumably from experience or experience of going really right up to the line. Because with some exercises like deadlifts or squats, you don't want to fail because it's you're going to be yeah you're going to be trapped or you could hurt your back or something yeah, yeah, like yeah. that like yeah for the big boys the bench the uh, squat the deadlift stuff like that just ride the line really up close to failure once so that you can know or have a spotter help you whatever it is uh, this is not real exercise in-depth advice no this is a general approach thing uh, just because it will really be eye-opening to you about where you should be working in yeah. So that is it for today's episode of Classically Ever After. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Oh, yes. Uh, sorry, I'm used to being a mere guest on Abigail's podcast <laughs> while she does the sign-offs. And now I am a co-host. You are a co-host. I'm a co-host. Big <laughs> co-hosta. <laughs> so thank you guys so much for listening. Leave a comment down below sharing your thoughts. And we'll see you guys in our next episode. Bye. Bye now. <laughs>